And then we make hypotheses concerning, okay, what could have caused this thing to happen? And then we find ways to test these hypotheses. Or we say, what would the uh, afterlife hypothesis, what would that predict? So with Sabom, for example, you're looking at his patients, and he's, say, he's saying, well, the afterlife hypothesis would predict that if these people were actually coming out of their bodies, that they could describe their resuscitations accurately. But a naturalistic hypothesis that says there is no afterlife, or that the brain cannot separate from the mind, that hypothesis would predict that they could not know what was going on in their resuscitation when they were experiencing clinical death. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi, everyone. I'm really excited today. I have a fascinating guest. He is Dr. Miller. He is a professor at Kennesaw State University. He has written about and focused on deathbed experiences, deathbed visions, a little bit on shared death experiences, and a lot about NDEs, near-death experiences. And he can do a better intro himself. So go ahead, Dr. Miller. Well, thank you. I live in Georgia, teaching at Kennesaw State, as you said. So I do have a PhD where I studied deathbed experiences for my dissertation. And so I teach a class on death and dying, where we talk about such things in a university level, which is which is really rewarding because I have so many diverse students. There are Muslims and Jews and Hindus and atheists and theists and everything in between. So we get to discuss these things. So I'm used to speaking with a diverse audience and thoroughly enjoy it. That's great. And I just think it's so interesting when you get everyone from such different perspectives together. And we'll get into this more as we talk, because I know one of the things you do talk about is people who come from all these different perspectives, there's still this consistency in the experiences, deathbed visions and NDEs. And we'll get more into that. I feel I'm kind of giving away the punchline too much here. So I guess my very first question is, what got you into this research in the first place? Well, when I was in high school, I went on a retreat, mainly because a girl I liked was going. And when I got there, I um, made some decision for God in my life. It felt like that I was brought up 
taught me that God was a God of love. And I thought, well, if God's a God of love, then what am I doing fooling around outside of his will and missing out on his best? I just kind of accepted things at that point. That's what I'd grown up with. Uh, but shortly after that, I began to go through questions about, okay, well, what about the Bible? What about evolution? What about, you know, the standard questions that we all think through as we go along? And uh, I could never accept things just because of blind faith. And so I would have to study out the pro and the con. And then I would kind of regain my faith on a firmer foundation. And then I would come up with more questions. So basically, my college career was basically a study of, of trying to understand better the tools of research, like deductive logic, how to do good research, and then actually researching out these questions that I had. So I went to three diverse universities, two different graduate schools. And so I was just a questioner by nature and wanted to get at the answers. So about 10 years ago, I had a relative give me a little book, Heaven is for Real. And I'd not really, interesting, I'd been through all these questions, but I'd never been acquainted with near-death experiences. I just thought, this is something that you either believe or don't believe, and it's just the person's personal experience. So what kind of evidence could be there? So I'd never studied it out. So I kind of reluctantly read it, and I read it, and it was an interesting you know, testimony of little boy's experience with a near-death experience. And, and I thought, well, that's interesting, but it really doesn't have that much evidence because I don't know the family. I'd need to interview the doctors. And, but there was a little quote on the back. I think it was uh, Dr. Long who said, I've studied near-death experiences for years, and this is consistent with what I've seen in them. And I thought, somebody's been studying this. So I went back and saw, sure enough, ever since the 1970s, tons of researchers. I mean, just these are not seminaries. They're not pastors. They're not rabbis. They're just academics that found a very fascinating experience that has a global consistency to it that wouldn't be expected if this were just a naturalistic occurrence. So, so my big thing was to go into the research by academics and to see, does this really have any evidence for the afterlife? And so then believing in God initially, you always thought consciousness could most likely survive bodily death? Or did you ever hit a period of time where you thought none of this could be true? Oh, I went through all kinds of thoughts, pro and con about everything, because my mind just wanders from item to item. I would read Bertrand Russell, uh, the great atheist through the ages, to see what they said about such things. I always kind of doubted my own conclusions and constantly asked the big questions. Is there an afterlife? Is there not? Is there a God? Is there not? I would read Richard Dawkins, see what he said, see what evidence he based his beliefs on. So uh, I was always questioning such things. That was always a possibility in my mind, knowing that I can't really be sure absolutely of anything in this life. I mean, I'm, I, I know I exist. I'm pretty much 100% sure on that because even to doubt it, I've got to exist to doubt it. But once you go past that and try to say, well, is the outside world really there? Is Liz really there? Maybe I'm my brain's in some, you know, test tube somewhere and I'm being manipulated by advanced aliens. I don't know. So I always keep that element of doubt going but just search for the truth to see where the weight of the evidence lies. What I just find so interesting about our conversation is we both did the same thing from very opposite perspectives. I'm a secular Jew and an atheist, and I had this desperate 
desperate hope that this could be true. And I didn't want to lie to myself. And it just, it's very interesting. We did very similar paths. And it seems you and I have come to pretty much the same conclusion. Well, and it's, and it's interesting that emotionally, we're coming from a little different perspective in that to me, life has been has been good, but it's been hard. I mean, it was hard working through all the academics and questions, and I wouldn't date anybody in college because I was afraid, hey, I don't know where I'm going to end up, so how can I really get a close relationship that may break up if I end up being a Buddhist monk somewhere? So I never really desperately wanted there to be an afterlife. I thought dying, oh, there's just no more responsibilities, <laughs> no more problems to deal with. So I really didn't feel like I had an emotional pull either direction. I just wanted to objectively know. I just felt like it was important to know. That's encouraging too, knowing that you were able to keep that objectivity. I did my best to keep it and I think I did, Mm -hmm. but I had intense emotions through the whole process, really hoping there'd be one outcome, although I was like to think that was balanced by the probability that I expected there to be an outcome I wanted. I thought delved in the first time there was like, a 2% chance this could be true. But in my grief, it was really worth it. I definitely want to get into exactly the research and your thoughts on it. But one question I do have is, do you feel it's different, your conclusions now versus when you believe this just based on religion? Well, I never really believed things just based on religion. My beliefs in religion came from weighing the evidence as well. So I just felt like, like a good scientist. You look at the data and you try to get your best data on whether there's a God, whether there's been a revelation from God, who was Jesus, near-death experiences, the afterlife. So I think you, you get your best data and then you get your best reasoning. And up to that point 10 years ago, I'd come to believe that, th- that there was a God. So I was fairly confident in that from my studies and, and the afterlife, but it wasn't based on a religion. I'd come to the religious decision based upon my research. So that's the way I would express it. Okay. So I would love to get into this research. So first of all, you write a lot about, we can start with NDEs, near-death experiences. Why don't you tell people a little bit how you found those and we can get into some of the most compelling aspects of them. Sure. So uh, basically, I read that little book, Heaven is for Real, and that kind of got me into, okay, what I really want to know is the research. And and I do want to kind of warn people, if you just go by exciting stories that you hear on the internet, you don't really know those people. You don't, and, and books written by people who say they've had an experience. Well, that's neat, but a lot of times we don't know those people. We don't know if they're mentally healthy. We don't know if they have reason to try to write a book to get a lot of money, or we don't have much. So for me, I wanted to get back to the research where people such as cardiologists like Dr. Sabom, he was a cardiologist. He didn't really believe this stuff about near-death experiences when someone taught a seminar on it, but he was challenged to talk to his patients. And he wasn't just your average cardiologist next door. He was teaching at Emory University, teaching cardiology. So he, he was very well respected as a cardiologist and mostly kind of to disprove Moody's stuff on near-death experiences. He decided, you know, I'll just go in and, and study it myself. So uh, he was pretty confident that none of his patients had ever experienced these. They had never talked to him about it. And uh, he began talking to his patients and found experience after experience where they said, hey, 
when, when I was clinically dead, when I was having my heart attack before I was resuscitated, when I was resuscitated, I had very clear memories that could not leave me of being outside of my body. I saw some of my resuscitation. I saw things in the hospital room. Uh, some would have a some would have a life review. They would talk about seeing deceased relatives, just all the elements of near-death experiences. Now, he was shocked and he asked them, I don't understand. Why didn't you ever tell me about these? And they said, you're the last person I would ever tell something like this. You're going to throw me in the psych unit. And so he began studying them, still convinced that these must have just been, there must have been some psychological or physical explanation for these. Took him about a year before he said, no, these people are really coming out of their bodies. And, and what he did, his book on this is very scientific. It's not just your easy reading type thing. He said, okay, let, here's how I'm going to decide if these people really came out of their bodies. I'm going to have two groups of patients. One group of patients had a cardiac arrest and uh, experienced clinical death, and they claimed to have had a near-death experience and saw their resuscitation from outside their bodies. I'm going to take another set of my patients who had a cardiac arrest, experienced you know, clinical death, and uh, yet they did not have a near-death experience. So I'm going to ask both of these groups what happened during their resuscitation. And he said, you know, if you just watch this on uh, medical TV shows, you'll think resuscitations are all done the same way. But he says there's just nuances of difference in every case, different people involved, different things that happen. He said the people who claimed to have had the near-death experience got their resuscitation right every time the people who did not have the near-death experience could not get it right. He'd say, what happened in your resuscitation? Those who did not have the near-death experience would say, well, I don't know what happened. He'd say, well, just guess. Just from your knowledge of resuscitations, what do you think happened? They would always get it wrong. So after about a year, he finally concluded the best scientific explanation is that these people were outside of their bodies. Besides, people who are experiencing cardiac arrest, if there's any of their brain working at all, once they hit clinical breath, which is no breathing, uh, no heartbeat, if there's any kind of mental stuff going on, it is very vague and distorted and probably nothing's going on. They're unconscious. How in the world would you have vivid memories so well laid down that you can't forget them? And, and 40 years later, you can remember this. And so he studied that. Van Lommel studied it in Holland, where probably most people don't even believe in God or the afterlife. Uh, if expectations were, were influencing what people experience, their expectation would have been nothingness. So why this global pattern where you would expect none under naturalism. So those are two of probably 11 or 12 different angles to me that say there's something more, it's better explained by something spiritual than something natural. Or you could even say what I've come to kind of think is that this is natural, but that our consciousness naturally is non-local and there's a substance or electronic charge or something we don't have words for that exists and is downloaded by our brains and could be downloaded by future brains. So, I mean, for me, I'm coming to think this is naturalism and completely scientifically natural. Well, and, and, that, and that's another way to go with it, which is very important. I really think we need people from all kinds of worldviews and religions looking at this, posing every hypothesis they can come up with. But yes, that's one of them. I think through the 1900s, late 1800s through the 1900s, 
we were so tied into this materialistic naturalism that we reduce everything down and eventually we'll see there's just a perfectly natural material makeup and cause of everything. Under that, you can't have an experience outside of your brain. Your brain is it. The brain just is the mind. And so now we are, ex scientists are exploring the evidence that, that no, there's something else besides the mind. And as you say, one hypothesis is that this is just all natural. I mean, the consciousness is a natural thing. It's just that materialism isn't an essential part of naturalism, if you're thinking philosophically. And, and I think we're finding out with quantum physics that at base, what, what does it mean to be, a nat to be a materialist anymore when at base things like electrons uh, and subatomic particles just don't seem really material at all? Maybe what we're made up of is something closer to consciousness than some little grain of sand that we're building upon. And there's two things you mentioned that I'd love you to expand upon. So you said about 40 years later, people will still remember their NDEs vividly. I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. Some people have hypothesized that, well, over the years, people will just, they'll have an experience. And then as time goes on, as we repeat things, as we rethink them, we have other layers of memories, things get distorted and hey, years later, people aren't going to remember it as it originally happened. But people like Van Lommel in Holland, he was also a cardiologist. He did the one of the first prospective studies in that where Sabom looked at experiences of his patients after they had had after the fact. Van Lommel decided, okay, we're going to do this prospectively. We're going to start out looking for these experiences before they happen so that we have better records of the patients to know whether they have mental illness, whether they've been given drugs or whatever, and we can look at it from the start. So one of the things he did was to say, okay, let's take these patients and not just interview them right after their experience when they know it the best, but let's do it at intervals like five or 10 years later and see if they indeed remember these. And it was just remarkable that these people could almost just play back a video of it and tell him exactly what they had told him years earlier. So they don't seem to be distorted. And again, this is an extremely vivid, stubborn memory when you wouldn't have expected the brain to be any state to remember hardly anything at all, much less vividly and hyper-consciousness. I just think that's so amazing because, you know, you meet a friend and you talk about a memory and from five years ago, and you'll have totally different stories about it. So it's just so interesting, the level of which these memories seem, I guess, as a lot of NDEers will say, realer than real. And it's the strongest memory of their life. But I don't know if there was one memory I could say is so life transportive that it was the most realer than real moment of my life. It's all been fairly consistent. Well, I just mentioned that my main study was going back to the studies of people like Van Lommel and others who had studied these and published in peer-reviewed articles and, and their own books on their professional research, rather than just looking at all the popular things. But after I began telling other people about my research, then I had friends that are kind of within my circles of trust that somebody would say, hey, you need to talk to uh, this person, like uh, the minister of men at, at the church I was attending at the time. The pastor said, hey, you need to talk to this person. So I talked to him. This is a person I trust. He'd been a successful businessman in the past, just a and he's not one that talks about this experience as if it was something that 
he was using to make money or to get attention. He really wouldn't tell anybody even in his ministry. But we got together in an office one day and he told me about an experience where he physically had gotten an infection, a stubborn infection, a septic situation to where he eventually was comatose. While he was there, maybe he died, maybe he didn't. But uh, he actually talked to entities on the other side and had this discussion about, would I want to come back or stay on the other side? And they made the conscious decision that it wasn't his time to go and he would come back. Now, I asked him, just like you were saying, people talking about it being realer than real. So this friend of mine, a person I trust, I know he's not crazy, very sane person, intelligent person. And I said, I kept going back to this reality thing. I said, now, was this... Was this just, was it kind of like a vivid dream or was it more real? He said, no, 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 it was real. Then I'd come back to it and I'd say, how, just how real was it? And he kind of got into my face across the table and he said, now it, it was real. He said, it was as real as me sitting across talking to you right now. No, 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 it, it, it was realer than this. And I thought in my philosophical mind, well, how do I know that I'm awake right now talking to Liz rather than asleep somewhere? And I'd say, well, it's because this is more real. This is the reality we experience when we're awake. And so if a friend of mine says, it was real, I was over there. I mean, it was more real than this conscious awaking experience. To me, that's another level of evidence that that says I've never had a near-death experience. But I can say confidently, if I were to have a near-death experience, I would believe it was real too. So even if I don't trust, you know, everybody else out there, why can't I trust in my future self as to what I'd be saying if I had one? I think that's significant, realer than real. I mean, people need to sit down and they need to light up a pipe and smoke on that a little bit on their back deck and just think about it. And you mentioned about you just have to trust some people. I know in your book, you mentioned about going to the moon. None of us have been to the moon between you and I, and I'm assuming none of my listeners have been to the moon. I will be ecstatic if I get one of the main astronauts here listening. Please email me and let me know that you are. But none of us have been to the moon. That's very true. And we have to trust the people who say they've been to the moon and the evidence we got. I mean, sure, you have an outlier now and then who says, oh, the moon landing was fake, but there's going to be that outlier. You kind of have to have that same level of trust of the diverse amount of people who've had NDEs, the consistency of their stories, and you have to trust some people. Well, I think you examine it like you do forensics. Forensic science not only looks at DNA and and physical things like that, but they are taught how to evaluate uh, eyewitness testimony to know if they're true or not. So you just... There, there are certain things you look at. Is there a reason that this person would be lying? Why, why would that minister at my church want to sit down and talk, lie to me for that period of time about something that he had, he had nothing to gain from it? In fact, it's kind of like in a court of law when you have a person who's testifying against the mob and they have a lot to lose by testifying. So if I'm talking to people who've not written books, who are not out on the speaking circuit making money, by the way, I'm not making any money on this, but if I have all these people who are not making money, in fact, they have something to lose because most people think they're a little bit crazy and start wondering about them after they share. Uh, Also, 
there's a, a very small percentage of people who testify to having gone to the moon, but there is 4% of the population when they've done vast surveys of the United States that say they've had a near-death experience. This is millions of people, millions and millions of people globally that are testifying they've been there and had this very uh, consistent experience that you wouldn't expect people of various cultures to have had. I noticed when I started studying this and talking to people, I found out a few people in my outer circle had had NDEs. And of course, I've met people who've had them through doing this research, but these were not people part of this world. And few people told me, and they had the same consistencies of the NDEs that I'd been researching. And why would they lie to me? They're not. They said they really never talked about it. They never told anyone. They Mm -hmm. had no need to lie to me. They weren't even close friends where maybe the only reason I could think maybe a close friend would lie is not that I think this is okay, but, you know, the only motive maybe one would have would be in the depth of my grief. They think making something up could soothe me, but this wasn't even a close friend who knew what I'd been through losing my dad. It was an acquaintance who someone said, oh, you should talk to this person. They had one. Right. And if I could expand upon this and make a little transition into deathbed experiences, which is a a sister experience, uh, which is consistent with near-death experiences, but it's, it's different as well. Not in a contradictory sense, but it's just a different experience. So deathbed experiences are a several types of experience that happen surrounding a person's final death. Whereas in a near-death experience, somebody dies and comes back. In a deathbed experience, these are things that happen around a person's final death. So at another relative that I respect a lot, history teacher, had a master's in history, smart guy, sharp person. And my mother said one day, hey, tell Bucky what you're uh, studying. And I said, near-death experiences. He said, oh, let me tell you about mine. And I was just shocked that he had had one. He had never talked about it at family gatherings, but he was sleeping one night, woke up middle of the night, felt like something huge had just fallen on his chest. He came out of his body, visited with an angel or something on the other side, saw his body from remotely, saw a light in the corner of the room, came back into his body immediately. He Well, he woke up in a cold sweat. The phone rings immediately, and it's somebody from a, a hospital a couple of hours away saying that his dad had just passed away from a massive heart attack. Now, he didn't even know his dad was ill, so he wasn't thinking about it. He wasn't expecting this to happen. His dad had been to the doctor recently just to have a regular checkup. They said he was fine. He thought his dad was fine. So what about the timing of that? I mean, if that were just, and he's not, this isn't something that happens to him on a regular basis. This is the only time this has happened. It seems to me the most reasonable explanation is that either this is something spiritual or like you say, there's a natural ability that people are able to have these kind of distance experiences. So that is called a crisis apparition. Somebody will experience somebody else that's just died, either a friend or family or acquaintance, and they just know the person's died, but often they had no indicate the person may be on another continent, but they had no idea that it happened. Now, you say, okay, well, yeah, but out of billions of people, naturalists will say, you're going to have these anomalous things happen that just don't seem like they're possible. But some people at Cambridge University and Oxford University and William James at Harvard University, they got together and did a study. They said, 
said, well, let's see if the incidence of these crisis apparitions are enough to where we can say confidently that this is not just a naturalistic happenstance. So they surveyed 17,000 people kind of around Oxford and Cambridge and around Harvard and found that about 10% of the people claimed to have seen somebody who wasn't physically there. And the largest category of these were in crisis apparitions where they saw somebody that had died before they had died. Okay, they just knew it. And they put together the odds of that happening, which was 440 times as many as you would have expected to happen if it was by chance, because we pretty much know the odds of someone dying from actuarials. So they actually applied it. A great study that they did. And yet I saw it in one of my relatives that I trust. And so I think putting together, when you start talking to your relatives and friends about these people that you trust, then you put it together with that research. It just adds another level of evidence that there's there's reality behind those. And then I've met a few people who've had experiences like that. Full disclaimer, I met them through my research, so it's not a neutral sample. But these aren't people you could even say an adult losing their parent, you know, they could be prepared in some way. But I mean, I've met people who've lost, you know, very tragically, you know, a healthy child in an accident and they've been away, you know, the child's maybe been at school and they've had experiences where their child came to them and said, I don't want to get into any specifics and share someone's personal story too much, but just things like, oh, I'm so sorry, or I'll be okay, you know, and they would just see their child before them out of nowhere. And then it coincided with an accident. Inspired by David Justus, who died after a nearly two-year battle with glioblastoma, JET, Joyful Experience Team, was founded by his son Oliver Justus and his best friends, River Attard, Leo Gerstein, Jack Gorenstein, and Felix Ward. JET seeks to create joyful experiences for families struggling with brain cancer, a chance to enhance their lives with experiences that are rich in love and will be treasured for all time. We believe, like David did, that life should not be measured in time, but in joyful moments. JET will allow families coping with this painful diagnosis to go to special events and be treated like VIPs. Go to makingheadway.org forward slash JET for a complete list of programs and activities. And, and it's typically very brief. It's not like they're talking about all kinds of theology or telling you why the world is as it is, but they're just kind of saying, hey, I'm okay, don't worry about me. And the person just knows, wow, this person died. This has never happened to me before. And then they find out later, they get the phone call or they find out that the person actually uh, passed away. After I started studying these, my wife told me of an experience that she had had. And Sherry and I both were working at KSU in a secular setting, academics, this and that. She's not the type of person that's always coming home with a, a miracle that's happened. You know what I mean? She had actually seen her grandmother in a casket before she knew that she was had, had a massive tumor on her breast that she would die of. And then when she saw her in the funeral home, it was like that was the same scene that she had seen months earlier. 
So these are things that I think in the 1900s we stopped talking about because they were kind of embarrassing. So we don't typically hear them still from people, from our friends and relatives. But if we start talking, we'll hear some pretty dramatic experiences, likely because, hey, uh, 4% of the population with NDEs, that's like one out of 25 people. Deathbed experiences are even more common. Maybe over 80% of people who are dying, if you talk to them on a daily basis, they'll talk about starting to interact with the other side. So, so we're not talking about something that's odd or one in a million. And when my dad was sick and moving into hospice, he kept saying, my mother's here. And he kept saying how he was talking to his mother. And I hadn't studied this enough to know to talk further about that. I was terrified and young and screaming, get his psychiatrist in here. He's hallucinating, still under the delusion he was going to get better. But he would sort of sanely say, oh, my, so my mother and I were just talking this morning and his mother had been dead since before I was born, you know? So wow. I think it just... And that's one of the practical reasons for your podcast and my writing to deal with things like this. And that's one of the main reasons it's being studied so much now is you have hospice has become a big thing. They've been record, they've been able to resuscitate people better and, and track the near-death experiences. But nurses need to know what to do when they're dealing with the dying. When somebody says, hey, I'm, I'm speaking to my deceased wife, they need to know, well, do I adjust the morphine or do, or is this something that's normal. And basically the people who have studied these deathbed experiences would say, no, this is normal. There was a, um, a study at a New York hospice in, within the last 10 years. And uh, they studied the dying and found out that these experiences were quite normal. So whether you take them as actually visiting with deceased relatives or if you say, well, but it is a natural thing. This is not a don't don't think it's a hallucination or due to the medications. Uh, you need to take them seriously and talk to them about it. Just say, well, well, tell me what grandmom is saying or whoever it is you're seeing. Oftentimes, I think sometimes a person needs to get something right in their lives before they die. There's something going on there. And what they don't need is somebody saying, oh, well, just don't worry about it. You're not feeling good and brush it away. This could be the most important experience the person's ever had. So take them seriously. Talk to them. This is an opportunity for ministry at, at the time of death. I mean, if I knew what I knew now, I would certainly have handled that point differently. And I guess the closest I got to evidence related to it, my father kept speaking about his mother and consistently mediums have said the first person he saw when he crossed over was his mother. So I'll take that as evidence can't say it's proof, but I'll... <laughs> what we're doing is we're trying to sift the evidence. We're not crazy people that just believe anything we hear. I, I hope what we're trying to do is to sift the evidence and see where it comes out. Uh, another thing about a... Um, well, one, one thing I didn't mention, this is obvious if you think about it, but people like Bucky and my wife, Sherry, that I gave their experiences, you can't really explain that by saying that this is the product of a dying brain because neither one of them were dying. They were pretty... 
perfectly healthy and saw dying people in a, in a crisis apparition. Uh, another type of deathbed experience, my, I mentioned that my mom passed away in December. She didn't have any terminal illness that we knew of. She was not feeling well, but one day she just told me, she said, Steve, I think I'm, something's changed. I think I'm dying. And she said, I mean, she was totally conscious, totally uh, rational, and uh, she made sure I understood what she wanted in the funeral. She she said, oh, I don't have anything to wear. You'll have to go to Goodwill. She was really cheap, you know, get me something. I said, no, 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 I think you got some stuff. So I brought out clothes. She told me what she wanted to wear. And uh, within a couple of weeks, she had died. But I, I asked nurses, I said, do you think she's at the point of death? I said, no, she has a urinary tract infection, but her heart rate's fine. Her oxygen's fine. She seems fine. But people are often aware of their own their own death before it happens, even if there's no physical evidence. Now I'm just wondering, where could that come from? It's not like they've died before and recognized the symptoms. I mean, this is the first time for everybody, right? And so, but how do so many people know ahead of time that they're dying? I, I think there's something there beyond what we think of as the physical that uh, points to this. You wrote about a few young people, including a young guy. I mean, share the stories you want, but one that's jumping out at me was a young guy, I believe in his 20s, who was, had an infection and they said he was better. And then he saw a being in his room. Sure. This is a person in India. Osis and Haraldson did a study of, I don't know, probably over a thousand people in America. And then they said, okay, let's compare this to people in India who have a very different worldview. They're studying uh, deathbed experiences. And so this was a person who he had had some kind of an infection. I believe it was an ear infection. And then he, they said, after a while, they said, okay, we're about ready to release you. Everything seems fine. And then he starts saying he sees somebody who's come to get him. And he says, no, no, I don't want to go with you. And then he died immediately. So how do these people know they're about to die? Even when the doctors are saying, we don't see any terminal illness, doesn't look like you're about to die to us. And yet they uh, just know it. There's some interesting examples from history too. People like Mark Twain have had uh, crisis apparitions. Like he had one of his brother dying and this was when they were young. Maybe you want to share a little of the details of that because I I think that's an amazing story. It really is. Now, you can find it in his autobiography. He writes about it. Uh, some people on the web have claimed that he never really, it never really happened. They just didn't look far enough. It's in his autobiography. Uh, and, and Mark Twain was not a kind of churchy guy, if you've read much of him or about him. He really didn't like a lot of this religious stuff. So it's kind of amazing that it would come from him. But uh, he worked on a... Uh, steamship that would go up and down the Mississippi. And his brother was also working on one. And his uh, one night, Mark Twain had an extremely vivid, he thought it was a dream. It was at night, but it wasn't like a normal dream. It was extremely vivid. And in that dream, he saw his brother. He was in a casket. It was set up between two chairs in a very specific room. It had a very specific flower arrangement on top of it with some red, some white uh, flowers on top of it. And he came to and went running downstairs because he thought it was real. He thought it had just happened. And then after a while, he was walking on the street. He said, oh, 
oh, that must have just been a dream. And he went back upstairs. His brother was up there. And he said, but it wasn't long, maybe a few weeks later, when there was an explosion on a ship and his brother was injured seriously, died a few days later. And when Mark Twain went to see him, there he was in the casket, just as he had seen it with the same flower arrangement that was a uh, metal casket instead of a wooden casket, which the other people that had died were in wooden caskets. Some ladies had gotten together and pitched in to get him a nice casket. And oh, uh, and he was wearing Mark Twain's suit. And he had seen that beforehand, and he didn't even remember that his brother had had his suit. So that was a very unexpected thing. I mean, you add up all those things and say, what are the odds that he would know of his death, that the casket would be there, that it would be a metal casket, the flower arrangement would be the same. And he was wearing his own suit, not not his brother's suit. The odds are, are pretty remarkable. So this, this made a great impact on him, and other people began studying deathbed experiences after that. I believe that was all before the Sidgwick and others at you know in Europe began studying deathbed experiences. There's so many studies, and you just when you start putting them all together, you can't dismiss it as coincidence at all anymore. It's the odds of chance of this many people, this accurate being coincidence is just not, it's not, you know. And another part that you've talked a little bit about, you know, with deathbed experiences, you know, terminal lucidity. I think that's a very interesting aspect too. Yes. So often when people are in the process of dying, in, in fact, some people who speak against the afterlife will say, Hey, we know what happens at death. Your body starts shutting down in patients such as Alzheimer's patients or people with a tumor on the brain. It's not just that a tumor is kind of pushing away the brain, but often it's actually eating away at the brain to where there's not that much brain left. So the expectation is from naturalism, typically, that that as your brain dies, it's not going to recover suddenly at the end. But with terminal lucidity, what they found, and there's some studies going on in Europe right now to try to get larger number of these, but it's happened in enough reliable cases where we know it happened. People will maybe have gone comatose, they can no longer communicate, and then just before they die, they'll be fully functional, start talking to everyone, say their goodbyes, and then will suddenly die. And uh, so that's called terminal lucidity. So again, the question is from naturalism, or if there is no afterlife, if the brain is the body, it would seem that those brains are to a point where they're non-functional. How, number one, are they right at the end functioning normally, which seems like the mind is separated somehow from that deteriorating brain and is still allowing them to understand and to communicate. How does that happen? And number two, why does it happen right before you die so that these people know they're dying when uh, doctors are really not very good at predicting? If it's a long-term illness, they're not very good at predicting within even weeks, much less a day, when someone's actually going to expire. All this is just amazing phenomena. And to kind of shift the direction we're going a little bit. One thing that really stood out to me in reading your books was you had a very good process of assessing these, a scoring system. If you want to talk at all about how you assessed all of these cases and data, 
Well, I think that science is, uh, a lot of people will say, well, this isn't science because it's not just dealing with the physical world. And I'd say, well, well, quantum physics, the very basis of, of what we thought was a material world, that's not physical anymore. So you've got to go beyond the physical now dealing with science. When we talk about electromagnetism, when we talk about gravity, these aren't physical in the way we used to think of physical as being little tiny pieces of sand that we build up from. So to me, I'm trying to reason scientifically. Science, people define science in different ways. You'll find out if you look at the introductions to a lot of scientific textbooks and a lot of scientific dictionaries and encyclopedias. But to me, what distinguishes science is that you're making observations. Yes, we use our senses to do that. We enhance our senses with microscopes and telescopes or whatever we need to to observe things. And then we make hypotheses concerning, okay, what could have caused this thing to happen? And then we find ways to test these hypotheses. Or we say, what would the uh, afterlife hypothesis, what would that predict. So with Sabom, for example, you're looking at his patients and he's he's saying, well, the afterlife hypothesis would predict that if these people were actually coming out of their bodies, that they could describe their resuscitations accurately. But a naturalistic hypothesis that says there is no afterlife or that the brain cannot separate from the mind, that hypothesis would predict that they could not know what was going on in their resuscitation when they were experiencing clinical death. So what I've tried to do with each line of evidence is to say, what would naturalism predict or what would the no afterlife hypothesis predict over here? And what would the afterlife hypothesis predict? And then I'll assess it and say, okay, you know, let's take this thing of crisis apparitions. What are the odds that this could have just been chance. Well, they figured out the odds. These were good mathematicians. They were good scientists. 440 times as many as would have been expected or predicted if this had just been a chance guess when someone was dying. So when you look at the odds, I say, you know, it just makes more sense. The evidence to me, weighs with the fact that these people actually knew someone was dying without physically getting the word. How could this occur? Well, let's let's think about it. And what I try to do is to say, hey, you as a reader, you assess it. You know, you think about this. What do you think makes the most sense? You assess the evidence because in science, it's typically empirical to where you're not going to come up with, a, up with an absolute 100% thing because, of course, as I say, we could all just be manipulated by advanced aliens and not even know it. But you just come up with the best hypothesis that fits the data at hand. So I try to put the data at hand out there, let you as a reader assess it, and then look at multiple lines of evidence and see how these would add up when you put, it's kind of like the Big Bang. You you know, you got some evidence from here, some evidence from here, some evidence from there. It accumulates or your evidence for uh, any uh, scientific theory. You accumulate evidence and, and then you try to put it together in a cumulative case. So that's basically the way I'm assessing the evidence. I kind of did a lot of that along with the cases I was reading when I was starting too. So I really liked how well you broke that down in details for readers. So I think anyone questioning this would find it very helpful to kind of follow along and there are charts in there that can help you. So I think that very helpful to people in grief and questioning to help you sort of organize your brain, which 
it often feels very disorganized when you're in the shock of early loss. And Well, I appreciate you saying that that worked for you because a lot of people are disappointed to find out they just want a whole bunch of stories and they just want to look at the stories and read story after story. I want to assess the stories, which kind of gets you into the practicalities of looking at it scientifically. And those of us that like to look at things like that and are looking for evidence, we love that. But it's not for those that are just looking for exciting stories. I, I put bits and pieces of the stories in there, but it's to assess it as evidence. And for those of you that like the exciting stories, they're written all over plenty of places. And you can take the exciting stories and put them through this system. And it really adds to a security and I don't and not a false sense of security about this, a very logical reason to trust your assessments of them. And you know, I'm not going to tell you what to think about them. But when I do it with them, I've come to the conclusion myself that there really seems to be no other explanation than a form of survival of consciousness. What that means exactly, I can't say, but none of these things could happen in a materialist model where consciousness was created with a brain and nothing else. I agree with you. That's that's my conclusion. And I continue to study the evidence, but it, the more I study, the more it reinforces that conclusion for me. And then I have a question that I always feel stuck on. If the evidence is so compelling, why is it do you think it's so dismissed by so much of mainstream science? Well, I'm not sure that it is dismissed by mainstream science. I think that we feel like science is very secular. And I'll see a lot of my students talk about, oh, how secular the university is. And yet, when you do surveys of university professors, they're often a lot more spiritual than you think. Um, and I think the same thing goes with our assumption that scientists are all wrapped up in this material thing. If you do surveys of medical doctors, for example, they're medical scientists, basically, they're weighing out the evidence for what is the best drug to use to cure this disease or whatever. They're scientists. The, the vast majority of, of family physicians seem to be very spiritual. They believe in things like miracles. And um, so I, I guess I disagree with the whole assumption that most scientists are set in their materialistic ways. But the bigger question that I think you're bringing up is why is it that some scientists will just dismiss these um, so readily. Uh, I think number one thing that I see as I read these, and again, I try to read both sides. I try to read every side if I can't, whoever's written on it. But it seems to me that the ones who speak so strongly that this is just wish fulfillment or people are just seeing their expectations on the other side and these type things, or that's just caused by lack of oxygen or too much oxygen. or uh, and, and you can read the hypotheses, which have been really tested by near-death experience researchers through the years and, and found wanting. Or they'll say it's hallucinations and people will say, no, it's not hallucinations. Look at the studies. Look at the studies. What they tend to do is not even look at the studies. It's not that these people, I'll say in general, maybe there's some who've done some good research there, but the great majority of these who are just diehard materialists, they just don't, they just think it's such a silly proposition that the mind could be different from the brain and such a silly proposition that there could be an afterlife that they don't seem to even be remotely familiar with the studies. They're not in there reading the studies carefully and trying to sift the truth. They seem to have grabbed onto a paradigm, a way of thinking about things, which is very powerful. 
Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote a book, I believe in the 1970s, about the structure of scientific revolutions, where he talked about how scientists, who we think are extremely objective, are actually very susceptible to getting stuck in their own paradigm with the way they see things. And he goes through the history of science and shows that with things like quantum physics or with uh, Einstein's theories of relativity, that, that scientists will just hold on tooth and nail to their old theories before they'll give in and, and, and willingly look at the evidence from a new point of view. So I think people tend to get stuck in a paradigm with these things. Uh, plus, there's a lot at stake. I mean, if there is an afterlife, then maybe it really counts how you're living your life. And some people just don't want to look at that too closely because it might demand some life change that you're not very happy with. People come out of near-death experiences saying, wow, I ought to be loving other people and serving other people. It's not all about my attainments and my life and my degrees and me, me, me. Well, that requires a lot of you if you believe that. And I think that some people just don't want to go there. Right. And scientists are humans like all of us too. You know, all of us they are, are humans. In fact, some quantum physicists would say that science, you think of science as building upon itself and, and our, our ideas shifting from experiment to experiment. And they would say when it comes to the bigger overarching theories like quantum physics or relativity or the afterlife, things like that, that science doesn't grow from experiment to experiment, but it, it grows because the last generation dies out <laughs> and the new generation can look at it through a different light. So I think those are some of the reasons that people get so hard-hearted about these things without even looking at the evidence. Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. Because sometimes it gets scary, like, oh, they're so much smarter than me. They're seeing something I'm not. But it's true. And I started delving in. None of the one, none of them had ever actually researched this evidence. So I'd be very curious how it would change if they did. Yeah, you're in uh, New York or L.A. Oh, or go back and forth. I go back and forth. I'm in New York right now. Yeah, it's encouraging to see people like the New York Academy of Science, which is extremely, extremely well respected, that they've held a, a forum where they've discussed near-death experiences, experiences at death. And you see it coming from very well-established scientists in their field, neurologists and medical doctors. These are, you can't say that this is spiritual or philosophical people who are doing this. These are some of the top scientists in their field that are doing the studies. Wow, I didn't even know that about the New York, was it New York Science Academy or? I believe it's called the New York Academy of Sciences. And uh, after this, I can give you a link to it. Uh, they were having a discussion, they were having seminars based on death and resuscitation and what is death. Uh, Sam Parnell was a part of that. I think he has two PhDs. Um, and he asked one of the panel, what you know, tell me about these strange experiences that happen at death. And one of the panelists was a uh, physician, I believe, from University of Wisconsin, very respected. And he told about his first day on the job when a person was dying of a heart attack or they thought he was dying, uh, went, kept going into cardiac arrest. And this person ended up at the end of it recovering and telling him exactly what was going on and even his own thoughts while he was attending to this patient. He, the the uh, physician was feeling sorry for himself because nobody was in there helping him, being you know one of his early days on the job. And, uh, and he ate the guy's lunch because this guy wasn't going to eat it. And, and he comes back and he says, hey, you ate my lunch. And out there in the hall, you talked to my family 
telling them I was probably going to die. Well, that wasn't very positive. And, and the physician said, you know, I, 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 could, I could justify intellectually how this person might have overheard the conversation, might could have heard from a nurse a conversation, Mike could have heard it said, but when he started saying, and you were sitting there feeling sorry for yourself, he said, that was my thoughts. How could I, how could you have known that unless there was something going on like outside of your body with your mind? And this is like New York Academy of Sciences is on the wall behind them. So I think sometimes we assume that scientists are all over here and very materialistic. We're actually, especially today, I think we're going through a paradigm shift where scientists are willing to explore these matters. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I'm far from as smart as renowned scientists, but definitely being a hard and materialist before studying all this, I changed my mind. So, you know, if any of you are materialists, don't, don't you know, give it a chance. I know it's really scary because, you know, especially if you're in grief, you want it to be true. But I have a few final questions if you if you have time i don't know if you have to jump off it's been an hour yeah i'm doing okay so far my dogs seem happy <laughs> so they're not barking at us okay great um just backing up a little because i know this is a question a lot of people think about you brought up the oxygen in the brain why do you not think or why have people concluded it isn't just the deprivation of oxygen to the brain when someone's having a near-death experience so people like uh, Van Lommel in Holland, who did a perspective study, they would actually track the oxygen levels of people as they were having these experiences. Uh, we can also see what people do when their oxygen levels drop, and we can see, okay, there are some similarities to some things that happen, but it's not like they go into a near-death experience. And I think that's what a lot of people do. They'll say, oh, look, here's a study of people fainting. Maybe they didn't get enough oxygen. They fainted, and sure enough, they heard people talking on the other side, and they did this and that. But then you go and look at the study. Again, you have to keep going back to the studies themselves. You go back to the study and say, oh, well, what they said was they heard faint talking that they couldn't even understand in the background. Well, that's vastly different from a person having a near-death experience and hearing exactly what some being on the other side is saying. Um, so lack of oxygen, that's been studied. I mean, Moody mentioned that as a potential explanation back in 1975 and 76 in his book, Life After Life. And it's been studied by near-death experience researchers to where they'll see, was this person experiencing lack of oxygen? And what does lack of oxygen show in other people's lives? So these naturalistic theories, like in my book, uh, Near-Death Experiences as Evidence for the Existence of God in Heaven, um, the first thing I do is look at where we are in the naturalistic explanations that people have tried to give and what kind of study has been done on them. Of course, when you're looking at things like uh, deathbed experiences and crisis apparitions, some of these are happening by people who are not dying, who are not experiencing loss of oxygen. So that can't explain it. And then a third thing I would say is that that still doesn't explain, in Dr. Sabom's case, how, how did people see what was going on in their resuscitation? I mean, lack of oxygen is not going to cause somebody to be able to know something that they couldn't have ordinarily known naturalistically. Right. Thank you. And then I want to ask you, how has your worldview changed since you first decided to start studying this to today? 
I already believe from other lines of evidence that there was an afterlife. I also believed in God. Those things didn't shift after my near-death experience, but I think it underlined them and said, oh, okay, well, here's another line of evidence that is very strong, uh, let's just say talking for the afterlife, that now when I see a materialist, I think, okay, uh, if you're saying that materialism is scientific and that science tells us there's no afterlife, what's your evidence scientifically that there is no ev- out afterlife? And what I find typically is there's no critical experiment or series of experiments that showed there is no afterlife definitively. So why are you holding on to something that there's really no evidence for? To me, the evidence now, looking back over my last decade of study of near-death and deathbed experiences, I just think it's an awesome amount of cumulative evidence that this is true. So it's not that it shifted my whole worldview. It underscored some things that I'd already come to believe in through weighing evidence. But also, perhaps there has been maybe more of an underscore or something more than that, just regarding the whole, that the, the main thing is love. You know, they go to the other side. I mean, this is all kinds of cultures, all kinds of belief systems. I mean, think of it. Think of it, Liz. How many different views of life people have as to what's important for some it's I got to get the A's and I want to be the valedictorian or I want to do, I want to get that good job. I want to have that good house. I want to, those are values that people hold as to what's important. Why in the world, if near-death experiences are being caused by people's expectations, don't they come back saying, oh, I had a life review. And what I learned is I should have been trying harder at my academics. Well, there's nothing wrong with academics, but Why do they consistently come back and say, you know, I haven't really been loving other people enough and I should have been loving people more and I need to be developing my character. And a lot of these people will go into uh, into fields where they're help the helping professions, where they're helping others, because all of a sudden they realize that just the attaining of money and status and so many things we seek are not really where it's at. I'm just constantly amazed that globally people keep coming back with the same thing about love and that just reinforces to me that when I'm taking care for the last uh, 20 years or so I've been helping with relatives who are elderly or sick or in a demise and they're like my first wife died of cancer about you know 25 years ago well ever since then I've been helping one person after another I could have written a lot of books instead of taking care of them. I could have had a lot of achievements during that time. But I really think the main thing is just loving the people around me. And so when I look back, I don't have any regrets. I really think I was doing the main thing that really counted. And so we're helping a person now, a friend of the family who's uh, dying of a lung illness. And uh, there's nothing more important than that. There's no more, nothing more important than asking one of my kids, how are you doing? And just sitting down and listening to them or helping them through a problem or looking after a grandchild. It doesn't have to be something huge in life. It's the little things around us. And I think that's been a almost a revolution in my life to just be so reinforced that that's what counts.
You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. As I'm sure you've heard, the Supreme Court in the United States just overturned Roe v. Wade, which protects a woman's right to have an abortion if she chooses. Now it's illegal in some of our states. If anyone is looking to obtain an abortion and you live in a state where it's illegal, you can check the following sites. I suggest using a VPN, virtual private network, which hides your identity on your computer or phone. These are the sites, womenonwaves.org, womenonweb.org, aidaccess.org, plancpills.org, wholewomanshealth.com, abortionfunds.org, and of course, Planned Parenthood. I linked all of them on our Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore and they're saved in our stories. These are also great places to donate and see if they need any help. Hi everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife, and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, 
please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. So Olivia asks, what's the difference between a psychic and a medium? I've always thought they were the same thing, but it seems you've mentioned in your podcast, they're actually two different things. Hi, Olivia. That's a good question. I actually used to think they were the same too, but they're not. So there is a quote that I learned by Lloyd Arbach, and it seems to be kind of the general consensus in parapsychological research. All mediums are psychic, but not all psychics are mediums. So what's the difference? The difference is in a medium reading, the medium is communicating with the consciousness of our deceased loved ones. In a psychic reading, the psychic or the psychic medium is reading a living person's energy. That's when if you went to get a reading, a psychic reading about yourself, that's when they would know things such as occurrences that happened in your past, what's going on with your love life, finances, career, health. Those are the type of questions people usually want answered in a psychic reading. In a medium reading, that's when either people want to communicate with someone who's passed away. That's when researchers are studying, or if you personally want to see for yourself, is it possible that we survive bodily death, that our consciousness survives in some way? And so those are two different types of readings. I will go into more in other episodes about how you can tell which is which and some of the research done on both. But a really interesting episode where I talk about this is episode 31 with Mark Bacuzzi, one of the co-founders of Winbridge Institute, because they have studied the difference between the two types of readings and how do we know a medium is not just reading us psychically. And I think that's there's a lot of interesting research on that topic, which I'll go into in later episodes. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Wow. I can't think of any better way to end on this. That's a very beautiful message. And just imagine a world where every single person approached their life that way. We'd have a, no matter what their beliefs, you know, that. Yes. uh, It would transform the world significantly. Wow. Thank you. I really appreciate that message. Yeah. I just. I don't think there's a better thing we could, more powerful thing we could close on. So um, I guess I will just ask, is there anything else I didn't ask you that you want to add that you feel was missing? I don't think we can top love as the last thing to mention. And I think that's what I want to come out thinking about is, you know, after this, I'm going to go do the routine stuff, feed the dogs, fix supper. I'm kind of a housewife type guy, you know, uh, working with those things. And all those things are important. Love the people around me. Answer people's emails nicely. Show them love. Be concerned about the other person, not me. I just don't think we can emphasize that enough. And wow, isn't that the outcome of the near-death experiences? For anybody that's had 
any depth to that, that experience and has actually interacted with the other side. Wow. It's just amazing, that consistency. So thank you so much for your wisdom, your experience, sharing all of it. I have to ask if you can let our readers know where they can find you, find your books, the names of your books. My website is J Steve Miller, the letter J Steve Miller at um, dot info, J Steve Miller dot info. That's my website. And I talk about my books there. I'm not real active on social media that much, but you can go to uh, wherever I've done interviews like Sean McDowell has interviewed me. A lot of people interact under that about my books. If you want to interact uh, questions and answers, you may have something like that on your site where they could interact with me. Uh, my books are uh, that near-death experiences as evidence for the existence of God in heaven. They're available on Amazon. If you don't have enough money, I'll just send you a free PDF of it. Just I'm at jstevemiller at gmail.com. If you don't have the money, I didn't write these to make a bunch of money. I would have done better working at Taco Bell than spending the time in research that I've been doing. The other one about deathbed experiences is deathbed experiences as evidence for the afterlife. Again, J. Steve Miller, and it's available on Amazon. But again, if you want a free PDF, I'll send it to you. I'm not out to make money. I'm just, this This is fascinating stuff that's, I think, just monumentally important for all of our lives. So I'm just trying to get the word out there. And I'm Thank working on you. ebooks and on the same you know, issues. offering the free. That's an example of people who've had indies, studied them, absorbed the lessons, you know, really about caring about others. So thank you. You're a real example of how to care about others with that. So appreciate it. So thank Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for your podcast, which gets the word out about these things and gets people to thinking on a deeper level. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief, and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them, trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.